0: Hello, and welcome to the ABTA Neurology Section Vestibular Special Interest Group Podcast Discussion of Vestibular Hypofunction. My name is Maureen Clancy, and I'm a physical therapist who's worked in clinical practice for 17 years. I'm joined by two experts who wrote the Clinical Practice Guideline for Vestibular Rehabilitation for Peripheral Vestibular Hypofunction. Dr. Susan Whitney, PT, PhD, NCS, ATC, FAP, received her PhD in motor development, motor learning from the University of Pittsburgh and her professional physical therapy education from Temple University in Philadelphia, Pennsylvania. Currently, she is a professor in physical therapy in the School of Health and Rehabilitation Sciences in the Department of Otolaryngology and the Center for Clinical and Translational Sciences at the University of Pittsburgh. She is the Program Director of the Centers for Rehabilitation Services, Balance and Vestibular Rehabilitation Center at the University of Pittsburgh Medical Center. Dr. Whitney is supported by a NIH from the NIDCD to study the effect of vibrotactile feedback in persons with vestibular disorders and an SBIR grant related to the use of a tablet to perform home exercise. Dr. Whitney has authored or co authored over 115 articles on Medline and is currently engaged in research related to vestibular disorder and concussion in children and young adults. Dr. Courtney Hall graduated from the University of North Carolina at Chapel Hill with a B.S. in physical therapy and received her M.S. in exercise science from the University of Oregon and was awarded a Ph.D. in kinesiology from the University of Texas at Austin. She has focused her research program toward better understanding age-related changes, both normal and pathological, in postural control and how best to intervene therapeutically to prevent loss of mobility and falls. She has studied various risk factors impacting mobility and falls, including motor, lower extremity, strength and power, sensory, visual and vestibular, and cognitive contributions to balance control in older adults. She is currently conducting studies examining novel treatment approaches to dual-task ability, non-vestibular dizziness, and otolith dysfunction. Dr. Hall is the author of numerous peer-reviewed papers and book chapters and lectures nationally and internationally on the rehabilitation of persons with vestibular dysfunction. Dr. Hall was a team lead in the development of the ABTA's clinical practice guidelines for vestibular rehabilitation. She is currently a research health scientist at the James H. Quinlan VA Medical Center and associate professor in the Department of Physical Therapy at East Tennessee State University. Welcome, Dr. Whitney and Dr. Hall. Thank you for um, having us. You. You're welcome. Dr. Hall, could you briefly explain what vestibular hypofunction is and some common medical diagnosis that fall under the category peripheral vestibular hypofunction?
1: Yes. Yeah, so peripheral vestibular hypofunction is when there's some permanent damage to the peripheral vestibular system. It can be the peripheral nerve or vestibular hair cells. So when we think about diagnoses that fall under this category, um, one of the most common disorders of the vestibular system is actually benign paroxysmal positional vertigo, also known as BPPV. This um, disorder, um, which is so common, uh, happens when the otoconia, or those crystals in the inner ear, become dislodged, and then they're floating around in the inner ear system, causing an abnormal signal. Um, Even though this is the most common disorder, it is not actually the same as vestibular hypofunction. So BPPV, um, what we think of it really is a mechanical issue of the vestibular system. It's usually easily treated with repositioning maneuvers, um, but it does not result in a permanent dysfunction. So when we think about those insults that result in... vestibular hypofunction, um, most of them are unilateral, and they can re- occur as a result of a number of disorders, including a vestibular neuritis or labyrinthitis, and these are viral or bacterial infections that attack the vestibular nerve, can be as a result of Meniere's disease, which causes episodic um, vertigo, could be due to an acoustic neuroma, which is a tumor in the inner ear system, or even a perilymph fistula. So those are some of the more common uh, diagnoses that would cause a peripheral vestibular hypofunction.
0: So in regards to, like, differential diagnosis between the different types that people may get, would you see different symptoms during a clinical exam or presentation of the
1: patient? So when we're thinking about uh, symptoms, um, these are uh, really key in helping us uh, with the clinical diagnosis. And so when we're thinking about our vestibular diagnosis, first of all, we're not um, necessarily diagnosing what the medical condition is that caused the hypofunction. So we're really trying to understand, is it a unilateral or bilateral hypofunction, and then uh, what the symptoms are. So in terms of the history, the first thing we want to think about and hear from our patients is what is the tempo? You know, is this an acute or chronic um, situation? Uh, Are the symptoms coming in spells um, or are they um, chronic? Um, What are the specific symptoms? So are they experiencing true vertigo or is it more vague, lightheaded, uh, rocking or floating sensation? Are they having disequilibrium? or oscelopsia, which is visual blurring? Um, Have they noticed changes in hearing or tinnitus? And then finally, in terms of the symptoms, we want to think about those circumstances that exacerbate or alleviate the symptoms. So, um, for example, someone who's had a vestibular neuritis, they would typically report an acute onset of vertigo. And it's so significant that they usually can tell you the exact day and even time when it started. Frequently, they have nausea and vomiting. Um, They typically feel off balance, and that is um, made worse with head movements. On the other hand, someone who's had um, bilateral vestibular hypofunction, it may have been more of a um, slowly progressing problem, and they can't really put a handle on exactly when, Um, but they feel definitely off balance. They have oscillopsia, visual blurring, And it's typically associated with position, um, with head movement. Um, In terms of the clinical exam, we want to think about focusing on the ocular motor exam, and that helps us identify if it is peripheral vestibular hypofunction or if it's central. Um, So you would be looking at um, their smooth pursuit eye movements and psychotic eye movements. They should be normal um, unless there's a central problem going on. Um, We're also looking to see if there's spontaneous nystagmus, and this is that... um, Uh, jerking eye movement and if it's spontaneous that's in the absence of head movement. If the problem is peripheral um, we would have the person look in different directions and um, that would impact the speed of the nystagmus but not the direction. There are a couple of other tests that we would do. The head thrust test um, in which we quickly move the head in one direction. It would be positive In other words, we would see a corrective saccade um, if there is a deficit to that peripheral uh, vestibular system. And also the dynamic visual acuity test assesses the integrity of the vestibular ocular reflex, which is used to see clearly when the head is moving.
0: Okay, that sounds wonderful. Um Dr. Whitney, is there any diagnostic tests from like a medical standpoint that you typically like to have patients have done prior to being seen in like a physical therapy setting? I I guess it it all
2: relates to my suspicion of of whether they have a central problem, if it's a peripheral problem and it's pretty clear that they have a positive head impulse test or head thrust test and and everything looks peripheral, I'm not sure that it's absolutely necessary for them to have testing. Now, now there is some evidence out there, it's controversial, that uh, if they have a unilateral loss and it's acute, and in our setting, that's within the first month. Um, if they come in within the first month, I really like them to see an ENT. And the reason is is that there's some evidence, at least out of the study in Germany, that if you provide steroids, that you may actually have better preserved function of the vestibular apparatus at one year. So I might actually refer them back for that. But it's not always – I know a lot of PTs like to have the vestibular test I'm not sure that it directly impacts my care if it's a fairly typical peripheral vestibular disorder. But when I'm in doubt or there's something that doesn't look right, I almost always ask the physician if they'll order some tests. Okay.
0: And so, and typically in terms of tests, would they do like calorics or. Um...
2: Yes, the typical battery would be the clerics the ocu- looking at oculomotor function. In our labs, they would do the rotational chair test and also the vestibular evoke myogenic potentials. And, and at least where I live, posturography isn't always paid, uh, so that's something that I actually do if they're sent to me. Okay.
0: So, um Dr. Hall, have you seen any link between patients with vestibular hypofunction and also having concurrent BPVV?
1: Yeah, so it's not that one necessarily causes the other. Um, Well, um, certainly it is. Uh, not uncommon in people with vestibular hypofunction to also have BPPV, um, and the connection may be that with the um, the damage to the peripheral uh, vestibular system, that matrix that normally holds those crystals in place may be weakened, and so the otoconia may break free, causing the BPPV, and so that may be the link, um, but it okay. certainly is not uncommon to have both conditions.
2: And I think Courtney and I have both seen this where you're sent a, a patient that the physician suspects has BPPV, you fix the BPPV, and they're still not right. And you say, uh oh, I missed something, I screwed up. And then I go back and I do the head impulse test and some other things, and I realize, oh boy, um, I, I totally missed something. So it, the literature is suggests anywhere between 10 and 20% of people with a neuritis or a labyrinthitis could potentially have BPPV. So it, it is something, like, like Dr. Hall said, that occurs. It's something that you need to look for. And uh, don't, don't miss it, uh, at least when they come back and, and they say, uh, my spinning's gone, but I'm still dizzy a little bit off. They might actually have had two problems, not one when you saw them and examined them the first time.
1: I've also had the opposite of what Dr. Whitney (laughs) is suggesting, where someone comes with the diagnosis of BPPV, and then you examine them, and they don't have it, and so then you have to go on and do the further exam and the head impulse test, and all of that demonstrates that they do have a peripheral hypofunction. So it can go both ways in terms of referral patterns.
0: So, um, can either of you comment on the role of any other, I know you mentioned that steroids sometimes are used in the case of people who have like an acute vestibular hypofunction. Is there any other like pharmacological treatments that are used for these patients?
2: Well, a lot of them are put on antiemetics for a short period of time. And there some, some folks that if, if it really bothers them, you'll even see some anti-anxiety meds, but that's pretty unusual. Uh, most there's not great evidence that, that drugs help the, the cure of uh, vestibular hypofunction, but it may help people live their lives better until they start to move more and start to adapt. And there's there's actually a little bit of evidence that suggests that some of the vestibular suppressants can actually slow compensation. So I try and steer clear of... Of at least suggesting meds when i 'm working with physicians if possible, because I think it uh, it it doesn 't optimize your care do you do you agree Courtney? Have you seen other things
1: no, absolutely, and I think that's um, that's one of the things that we often see is that people it 's fine for i think the first acute phases to use some of these vestibular suppressants just to help people with the symptoms but then we really want them to start moving and compensating. And that's where those medications can really have a negative impact. So trying to work with the physician and the patient, if they've been on, say, um, maclosine for a long time, working with the doctor to try to wean them off of that is really important.
2: I agree, Courtney.
0: Now, um, Dr. Hall, say you have a patient who comes into your clinic with either bilateral or unilateral hypofunction. What would your different um, treatment interventions be for that patient, depending upon what type of hypofunction they're presenting
1: with? Well, um, So the primary approach to um, vestibular rehab is exercise-based. And so we usually use a combination of different types of exercises. Um, The first would be the gaze stability exercises. And those are exercises, obviously, that promote gaze stability, especially when the head is moving. Um, And that would involve things like focusing on a target and turning the head side to side or turning the head up and down. And that can be used with um, people who have either unilateral or bilateral hypofunction. Really the key thing for us is to identify what the impairments and the functional limitations are, and then to choose the appropriate exercise. Um, So another um, type of exercise that is commonly used is um, exercises that habituate symptoms. So if people have motion sensitivity or even visual, motion sensitivity, we would use exercises to try to reduce um, the sensitivity. Um, Obviously, exercises for for balance and gait are important, as um, people with vestibular deficits often have problems with their balance. Um, And then finally, um, some either walking program or something to help with endurance. So quite frequently our patients will limit their activities because they're so dizzy and off balance. And so they can very quickly become deconditioned. Okay. Now
0: the Most recent clinical practice guideline put out a set of recommendations for gaze stabilization exercises um, that would have, like, the most beneficial effect. Can um, you expand upon the rationale behind that and kind of what the guidelines are at this point?
1: Yeah, so uh – basically the vestibular system senses head movement and then it uses that information two ways. One is for stabilizing gaze and then the other is for stabilizing balance. And so it's, the exercises um, involve head movement while maintaining focus. And so, um, you know, one, the main one is we refer to as the VOR times one exercise. It involves a stationary target um, with the head moving either, you know, side to side horizontally or up and down um, vertically. And um, you know that is really pushing uh, the system to compensate for that vestibular deficit and use the vestibular information for uh, maintaining gaze. A progression would be a VOR times in which the target and the head both move, although in opposite directions. Um, In terms of the the guidelines, um, recommendations for, you know, dose and frequency, um, it depends upon the stage of the deficit for the person. So, um, you know, if the person is acute or subacute within that first month, as Dr. Whitney uh, suggested, then we want the guidelines suggest that as little as 12 minutes a day of the gaze stabilization exercises will be beneficial. We typically break it up into three to five sessions throughout the day. So they do you know, maybe four minutes of the various types of gaze stabilization exercises at a time. Now, if someone is more chronic, so say they've had their um, problem for, you know, more than a month, Um, and let me just say, it's not uncommon that people shop around for a lot of doctors before they get a diagnosis, so sometimes it's up to a year after their onset of symptoms when we might see them. So, for these more chronic patients, then... um, a minimum of 20 minutes a day of the gaze stability exercises is suggested. Again, we typically break it up into three to five sessions throughout the day, um, trying to get them to perform, you know, anywhere from, you know, four to eight minutes at a time.
2: Can I just say something about that? And and we thought about this when we wrote the guidelines, because there's a lot of uh, interesting discussions about this. Uh, (laughs) what What Courtney said is what we know, but there's a lot that we don't know, so we don't know if more is better or if less is better and so what we know is that in the papers that did the exercises, as Dr. Hall suggested, they do work, but we really don't know in terms of a frequency and duration of the exercises if more is better or less is just as good. So I just want to put that out there because that's that's what we know. And we obviously need to learn more to, to really be able to answer your question about dosage.
1: Yeah, that's an excellent point. And I'm glad you brought that up, Dr. Whitney, that, that really um, there's a lot that we don't know about dose, intensity, frequency, duration. Mm-hmm. So there's still a lot to be learned. Is there a certain speed
0: that the patient should be performing the gaze stabilization exercises at, like a certain beats per minute, in order to be the most effective?
1: Well, I think there certainly is a minimum speed. Um, Again, we don't, there's not a lot out there, well, there's very little out there about um, intensity, you know, what speed um, needs to happen. We do know, though, that the vestibular system works at higher frequencies, and faster head movements. So in order to really engage the vestibular system, you probably need to be moving your head at least 100 degrees per second or at frequencies at least 2 hertz um, because that's really where we're forced to use the vestibular system. But I can't say, well, you have to move your head, you know, 180 degrees per second to be um you know most effective. We really do try to encourage, that's one of the progressions is head speed uh of the exercises. And certainly when we're when we're evaluating uh we use the dynamic visual acuity test and that um is tested at um speeds of 120 to 180 degrees per second. For some of the uh, dynamic visual acuity tests, or some of them go, you know, up to, you know, over 180 degrees per second. So we don't know a, a particular speed, but we do know that um, it has to be you know, faster than you could use other eye movements. Okay. Now,
0: um, Dr. Whitney, obviously, like with some of these exercises, it's going to bring out some dizziness in some of these patients. How do you kind of temper that with the patients, like how fast they're going, and just from a practical standpoint so that they're not getting too dizzy and not able to complete the recommended number of minutes per day. I guess
2: the most important thing to me clinically is that I want to know where they start. So my rules are different if you start asymptomatic, that you're on a zero, on a zero to ten scale, or if you start at a six, So I have very little range to increase the symptoms if you come in at a six and I ask you to start to do the exercises. Versus if you start at a zero, I could say max it out at six. So I can go up six points on my scale. But if I start at six, I may only be able to go up to seven or eight at the absolute highest. Um, so, So I... Draw out a little verbal analog scale, and I always say you you don't want to – this is just my opinion, all right, because there's no evidence for what I'm saying. But I, I always tell them to try and stay, get close to what I call the nausea bombing zone, but don't go in it because if you go in there, you, you, you're going to be sick and not feel good for a while. And I think most of us in the PT community in the U.S. use a rule that if, if you're still symptomatic after the exercises, 20 to 30 minutes after, that you may need to, to decrease either the, the, the amount Times that you do the exercise or the speed, because uh, it may make a, a difference in how you feel later. But it's it's a tough call. Um, but generally, I, I, I try not to make sure that I impair them for the rest of the day by doing their exercises. And and so if you give them at least some rules, like you started at a two, don't go more than a five or six or whatever, uh, then they at least have some rules as to to when to to back off or or instead of keeping at the same speed, maybe continue to do the exercise, but do it at a slower velocity.
0: Okay, that, that sounds very practical and kind of easy to use with patients. Now, how often um, are you either or both of you seeing these patients coming into like an actual clinical setting? Are you having them do more of the exercises on their own and they're only coming in like once a week? Or are you seeing them two to three times a week? Like what's the recommendation for that?
1: I think it's pretty common for most of us um, if the if the client doesn't have any other comorbidities to see them at a frequency of once a week. So they're supervised in the clinic um, typically once a week. Um, the key thing is what they're doing in the home exercise program. And so, you know, as, as I said before, the guidelines, you know, have kind of a minimum uh, duration of exercises, and that's to be done each day. So it's the key thing uh for us I think is educating the patients on, you know, the exercises and progression and you know, managing their symptoms so that they can do the exercises on a regular basis.
0: Okay. And then and that would be like the same frequency depending upon if they're acute or chronic.
1: Yeah, and Doctor Whitney can jump in if she wants, but I think um Typically, if they're acute, you might only see them a few, um, you know, a few sessions over two to three weeks, perhaps, because they may recover quite quickly. You know, if someone is more chronic, it may take four to six weeks, or if they have a bilateral uh, hypofunction, it may take longer. Um, So it really depends upon, you know, how well the patient is progressing how long we see them. Um, and again, if someone has some additional comorbidities, then it might make sense to see them more than once a week.
2: And also in the hospital, uh, they'll typically be seen twice a day. So Definitely. So when I see them in the hospital, I'll see them twice a day because the objective is to get them well enough that you can get them out. So so that, that intensity is, is much more common. Um, the other thing that's interesting, too, is that we don't really know how often is is optimal. I agree with Dr. Hall. I, I see my patients usually once a, once a week, but we don't know if you see them two or three times a week if they get better faster or not. So that that question has not been answered. But I'd say the the typical mode of of uh, dosage in terms of how often they come in in most places in the U.S. it's it's once a week. Okay.
0: And um, Dr. Whitney, is there certain outcome measures that you found to be helpful in terms of um, regulate, uh, determining progress with these patients that you typically tend to use?
2: Yes. Do you want me to tell you some?
0: Sure. <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> what so ones well. are the most helpful?
2: Uh, I, I think so that. the the most powerful measure out there is probably the Dizziness Handicap Inventory. It's been translated, I think, into at least uh, 40 different languages around the world. So the Dizziness Handicap Inventory is very powerful to tell you about the handicapping effects of dizziness and uh, really gives me an idea of whether the patient perceives that they're any better. A lot of us use... Verbal or in visual analog scales, or I'll just use, and this isn't in the literature, but how close are you to 100%, where where you were before this happened? And that helps me figure out where the patient perceives that they are related to their functional recovery. Um, In terms of objective measures, I I think many of us use the dynamic gait index and the functional gait assessment. Those are two that are pretty commonly used in the literature, as is the timed up and go and even gait speed. I personally use the activity-specific balance confidence scale if the person perceives that their balance is off. But if their balance is fine, um, I, I will give it to them the first time and then not again. So those are the, the things I typically um, use as outcome measures. There's lots of others out there, but those are at least my go-to measures that I do just about every day. But f- some people use the 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 Dynamic visual acuity test, too, is not come measure, but that doesn't that tells me the function of their eye movement. It really doesn't give me as much uh, an idea of how they're feeling. So I, I like to know how they perceive they're doing.
0: Okay. Now, Dr. Hall, in the clinical practice guideline, you mentioned that we should not be using um, psychotic or smooth pursuit eye movements in isolation. Can you briefly discuss why these exercises are not beneficial just doing them isolated without other things
1: Yeah. so what the in the guideline what we were talking about is psychotic or smooth pursuit eye eye movements without head movement and so when we're thinking about really um comp, helping the vestibular system to compensate it it really the exercises have to involve head movement so um you know when we were looking at the research, these um, smooth pursuit and saccadic eye movements were often used as the control group. And so compared to the standard gaze stability exercises where the person focuses on a target and moves their head. Um, And so what these studies found was that the control group did not improve in terms of their dynamic visual acuity, whereas the vestibular group doing the gaze stability exercises did. And so, you know, since... you know, a common complaint of vestibular patients is visual blurring with head movement. Um, We need to improve the gaze stability, and so those eye movements without head movement are not helpful for that gaze stability.
0: Okay. And, Dr. Whitney, would you expect that the patients who... um have either, and it can depend upon if it's unilateral or bilateral hypofunction, should they be making like about 100% recovery back to their baseline or kind of what point should we be discharging patients from like formal physical therapy?
2: I used to say that people with unilateral hypofunction would get 100% better, but that's not what uh, a very interesting study out of the University of Sydney says. Even those who compensated really well continued to have some difficulty, but they didn't complain of it. The poor compensators had a lot of difficulty with grocery stores and things like that. But even the people that they thought were in great shape after rehabilitation, continued to have some symptoms. So I no longer tell people they're going to get 100% better. Now people with bilateral loss uh, don't get better, but it depends on it depends on their level of loss. So the greater vestibular function that remains, the better your prognosis. So for example, nowadays some people are classified as bilateral having bilateral vestibular loss and they may have decreased VEMPs bilaterally. Well those folks often look pretty good to me. So it depends on what's involved. If if you've got caloric weakness bilaterally and they have absolutely no function, they have significant oscillopsia, they have significant gait Gate difficulties, kind of the wide base gate that, uh, and they fall frequently. Um, those folks are really impaired. So it, it depends because the the diagnosis, the 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 basket that you throw in unilateral, you, know, you know, hypofunction to, is is very diverse. Just like Dr. Hall started with, there's BPPV in there that's called unilateral hypofunction, because that's one-sided vestibular problem a once you know unilateral was problem you got all the people with the labyrinthitis neuritis those folks in that bucket and also in the bucket are bilateral loss and you got apples you know grapefruit and oranges in there so their prognosis is really different
0: now um dr hall how common would you, would it be that you would find people with balance deficits in this population is that a common comorbidity that they have
1: I don't want to say quite a hundred percent, but but yes, um, balance difficulties are a big problem um, in this population. Absolutely. And what
0: different recommendations would you give to those patients to kind of help to prevent their um, risk of falling?
1: Well, I think certainly um, education in terms of helping the person identify uh, situations that are more problematic. So um situations where you have to rely on your vestibular system, you know, poor lighting or uneven surfaces, um, you know, like walking on the beach at night, that that could be a situation where someone um with a vestibular problem would have uh difficulties. Um, for individuals with bilateral vestibular hypofunction, um, they really do become much more visually dependent. And so, you know, dark situations, uneven uh, surfaces are really problematic. So really helping them to understand that they may, may need to have an extra source of light to be safe, you know, like carrying a flashlight. There are even lighted canes that are available. So that's, I think that's um, important is just helping them understand where, where they may be unsafe. Um, but then the balance exercises are quite effective. Um, so we can improve their balance, although, you know, if there's a profound bilateral loss, uh, they will probably always be very unstable in, you know, poor lighting and on uneven surfaces. Okay. Okay. Um. Now,
0: there is um you do need to have good vision in order to do these gaze stabilization exercises. Is there anything that you can do for patients who ha- might have a visual impairment also in addition to like a hypofunction in order to modify the um exercises so
1: that it would be they'd be able to complete them? I'm going to let Dr. Whitney take that one.
2: Sure. <laughs> um I I I've I've checked it. Dr. Furman, about this in the past, who's uh, my colleague and friend, and he said if they can see anything at all, it's worth trying. So, I, even in people that I know this sounds ridiculous, but even in persons who are blind, um, they do usually get some light in and can see just a hair. So, I have actually tried it in persons who are blind who have unilateral you know, hypofunction. And you definitely see a lot of folks, who, who uh, just like anybody else, um, who are blind who have BPPV. So that's easy to fix. But it's much more difficult to try and do gaze stabilization exercises with limited vision. But I give it a try. Um, enhance the light in the area so so they could potentially see a target and try and focus on it. And it, it certainly is worth a try is what we believe here. Okay.
1: Yeah, I will also add to that. And I think um, if they have that poor of vision, then gaze stabilization may not be the goal, um, but certainly working with head, head turns to mm-hmm. improve their um, So it depends upon what the goal is. Okay,
0: so you would more focus on like actual just functionally moving throughout their environment versus actually looking at a target and keeping it in focus?
1: If, if their vision is that significantly impaired. Um, okay. I, I would definitely – work with head movements and, and, you know, looking and seeing what they could get as Dr. Whitney suggested, um, but maybe worrying more about the, the balance aspects, the postural stability aspects. Okay.
0: Okay. Well, that sounds wonderful. I really appreciate both of you taking your time to um, help to educate the physical therapy community about vestibular hypofunction um, is there anything else that you feel is important to discuss?
2: No, thank you for the opportunity. Yeah, yeah. Yes. Okay,
0: wonderful. Well, I really appreciate it, and um, thanks again, and I'll talk to you soon.
1: Yeah, thank you for having us as well. Yes.